Well, let's stand and ask the Lord's blessing on our Bible study this evening. Our Father, we come and uh, ask that thou would be among us as we hear thy word read and taught. That, Lord, our ears, not only outwardly, but our spiritual ears would be ready to hear, uh, our will uh, ready to obey our heart and affections ready to love thee, to love one another, to love thy truth. How we praise thee, Lord Jesus, that even as we open thy word this, this evening, we have the privilege of understanding one more relationship that thou dost bear unto us, thy people, uh, that we are thy friends and that thou art our friend. Lord, may uh, thou open unto us our minds to understand the glory uh, that Jesus has chosen us to be his friends. Bless, Lord, in this time of study, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So John 15, verses 12 through 16, and it tipped off already the theme of today, tonight's study, friendship. John 15, 12 through 16. <clears throat> This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth much fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. As generally as our practice, just a quick review before we begin in verse 12. If I were to ask you <clears throat> from our previous studies in John 15, uh, your opinion, what is the theme of John 15 thus far? What is the overarching, the, the um, main idea that is being presented in John 15. I'll not take any hands, but uh, we can, I think, summarize that just to get you thinking that it has to do with 
union and communion with Jesus Christ. That we are branches united to Christ the vine and we are to abide in him and he is to abide in us. That's, that's generally the, the theme of this chapter abiding in Christ, united to Christ, abiding in Christ, and Christ abiding in us. Uh, that relationship of not only being joined to Christ uh, in faith, which brings about our redemption, our justification, but also being in communion with Christ. And communion, again, I said it and I'll repeat it, uh, communion with Christ is really not simply one uh, aspect of salvation. Communion with Christ is really the end and the goal of salvation. To have fellowship with Jesus Christ, with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not to simply use salvation as fire insurance, that we uh, are rescued from hell, which is wonderful. Uh, we are uh, justified, no condemnation. Uh, that's great. We are adopted as God's children, wonderful. But that's, those are all means to the end that we might enjoy God now and for all eternity and that he might delight in us that there might be that close and near relationship with the living God, the God who made us, the God who made everything, has entered into union with us and communion with us. All of his grace, all of his mercy entirely, nothing that we have done but what he has done for us and in us. He receives all the glory, but that's, that's the glory of salvation. And if we lose that part, if we lose that when we're talking about salvation, um, we, we've lost, I believe, really the goal and the end uh, of salvation, uh, which is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's, again, what the work of Christ in our hearts when he saves us, that's what it brings forth, that we want to spend time with him and for him to spend time with us in communion. And as we talked about this past Lord's Day, uh, that communion is to be at all times, praying at all times, being in communion with Christ at all times, all the time. So as we now begin with verse 12, John 15, 12, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Now, earlier in John 13, verse 34, Jesus said, you can simply turn back a chapter or two and you can see it for yourself. 
Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. So in John 13, 34, he refers to the same commandment as he does in John 15, 12, but in John 13, 34, he calls it a new commandment. A new commandment. How is this commandment new? Commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. How is it new? Well, let me first tell you how it's old, and then I'll tell you how it's new. This commandment is an old commandment because it's revealed in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 19.18, there the Lord says that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. That's, that's from the Old Testament. That's from the law of God that we find in the Old Testament. So in one sense, this commandment is an old commandment. But why, in what way is it a new commandment? The new part of the commandment is, as I have loved you. So now we have added to the commandment that was revealed in the Old Testament that we're to love one another. Now what makes it new is, as I have loved you. Jesus has come. Jesus has shown us not only told us what love is, Jesus has shown us what love is. In his becoming a willing sacrifice to lay down his life in order to rescue guilty sinners resting under the condemnation of God. What was it that moved Jesus to do that? It was his love. His love not for the lovely, his love for the unlovely. Not his love for the beautiful, but his love for the ugly. Because when he set his love on us, it wasn't because we were so beautiful in his sight. We were sinners. We deserved his wrath and his condemnation. And so the love of Jesus is uh, for those that really don't deserve that love. That's the love of Jesus. That's the new part of the commandment. Love as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. Paul speaks of this in Galatians 2.20 when he says... I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, notice, who loved me and gave himself for me. How did Jesus show he loved us? He gave himself for us. That's the expression of love, is that it's not... When we love someone, we don't first evaluate, do they deserve the love that I'm giving to that person? But rather, the measure is, according to 
what Jesus did, he gave his life for those who didn't deserve it. And that's how we show our love is to give of ourselves even to those who don't deserve it. This kind of love that we're talking about, that Jesus is talking about in John 15, 12, is not a love that loves iniquity. It's not a love that loves sin. It's not a, a love that loves disobeying the Lord, but rather is a, a love that rejoices in the truth, according to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6. And yet, at the same time, though it does not rejoice in iniquity, it rejoices in the truth, at the same time, this is a love that shows mercy. Again, these words need to be defined so that we remember what they're talking about. Love, this kind of love shows mercy. Mercy, again, a, just a brief definition to distinguish mercy and grace. Mercy is not giving to one what they deserve. Grace is giving to one what he does not or she does not deserve. So, God shows mercy by not giving us judgment and condemnation. He shows grace by giving us salvation, everlasting life, communion with him. And so, love, biblical love, the love that we're talking about that Jesus is speaking of here, is a love that delights to show mercy and yet rejoices in the truth doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Love, therefore, does what is good and right for the one that is loved. Not necessarily what the one that is loved wants, but what's good for the one loved. See, if we simply give that we love our children, if we simply give everything to our children that our children want, that may not be showing love because it may not be what is good for our children. Love is giving what is good and right to the one that is loved. This love that Jesus is speaking of Loving our neighbor begins with loving God. We can't truly love our neighbor as we ought if we don't love God as we ought. Because, again, love for God, seeking to please Him, seeking to walk in faithfulness to His commandments, which is an expression of our love for God. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's from that love that we learn how to love one another. So we, we, we learn to love one another by way of having first and foremost in our mind 
that love begins with God. And it doesn't even begin in our heart, it begins in God's heart toward us. We love him because he first loved us. And so love, if we truly love the Lord, it will always lead to loving one another. And that love, love that we have, however, for God or for one another, you know, we have to be honest, it's never sinless or perfect love. Uh, we, we fall short, every one of us. But that should be our goal. That should be what we endeavor, what we strive for as Christians. And when we fail and we will, we say, Lord, please forgive me. I have not loved thee. I've not loved my neighbor, not loved my wife, my husband, my children, my parents, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ as I ought. Forgive me where I have failed. There are those who profess to love God, and yet I submit to you they deny it by the way that they treat others. By the way they treat their spouse, by the way they treat their children, by the way they treat their parents, or their extended family, or their friends, or even their enemies. Because this kind of love that Jesus is talking about is not only to be shown to those that we can consider to be our friends or those close to us, but it is even a love for those who are and make themselves our enemies. First of, first of all, um, just a few passages here. First John Chapter 4, verses 19 through 21 says, We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. In other words, he doesn't truly love God. He's, he's lying about loving God. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? If we can't love someone who's right in front of us, and we can't show that person love, how do we expect to show God who we, whom we can't see uh, uh, love? That's, that's the argument that the Apostle John is making here. And then verse 21 says, And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. But even with regard to enemies, what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5? And this is certainly stretching us, extremely stretching us into all kinds of uncomfortable contortions, what Jesus tells us. Matthew 5, 43 through 48 says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. 
that ye may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? If ye salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be therefore perfect as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. We will not attain perfection in this life, but again, we ought to strive knowing the love of God, which is a perfect love, love of Jesus, a perfect love, that, that ought to be how we measure uh, love. It's not by our love, but by God's love, by way of Christ's love. Um, and here, uh, God shows his common love, not a special love, but a common love for all of uh, even those who are um, his, make themselves his enemies, make them enemies against God, and they become God's enemies. But he even shows them love, a common love, by way of sending rain and sunshine. We, likewise, following his example, love our enemies, according to Romans chapter 12, verse 20 and 21, by doing the same thing. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. That's like the rain and the sunshine that God brings upon the, those who hate him. Verse 21, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So that's the first category. Um, there are those who profess to love God and deny it by the way they actually treat others, and even those very close to them. There's another category. Uh, there are those who profess to love others. So it's just flipping it. First category, they profess to love God, but don't really show it to others. In this second category, there are those who profess to love others, but they idolize people to the point that people are loved more than God is loved. That's just the opposite of the first category. This is seen, especially it's seen, I would propose to you when we will be very willing to offend God and break his commandments in order not to offend family and friends. We're saying when we're willing to offend God but not family and friends, we love family and friends more than we love God. That's, that's a violation of the, of the first great commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But now we've made the first, the second commandment the first and great commandment. That we love our neighbor more than we love God. So that's another category of people. A third category of people as it relates to love. There are those who claim to love the truth, whether it be doctrine, worship, and that's good. 
to love the truth. It's good to, lo to love God, obviously. It's good to love our neighbor. But if we don't get these relationships correct, then again, we're not loving as the Lord Jesus has given to us here in his word to love. But there are those who claim to love the truth. But then they treat those closest to them awfully, rude, name-calling, disrespectful, unfaithful, angry outbursts, rendering evil for evil, treating strangers better than they treat those within their own family. Dear ones, we know that we have learned the truth. If we apply the truth. We know that we have loved the truth if we love God and love one another. Knowledge of the truth, which we claim to have, actually makes us more accountable, not less accountable, by way of loving one another. We can't say that we've learned really anything if we don't love one another. Those are mere words. How do we tell we've actually learned something? It is when we begin to practice it, when we begin to love one another. How do you know your children have learned something? Just because they can repeat it back to you or when they begin to do it? when they begin to practice it. Mark it down before we move to the next verse in John 15. Mark it down. Where there is little love, there is little grace. For love is the fruit of grace. It evidences God's grace, his work of grace in our lives. So this is very, very serious business with the Lord Jesus because he continues to repeat this. John 13, 34, as we already read, he said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. John 15, 12, which we're looking at presently, this is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Then verse 17 of John 15, These things I command you, that ye love one another. The fact that he continues to repeat it emphasizes how important it is, and probably Jesus knows how forgetful we are. That we will focus on so many things but this, to love one another, is one that we will, especially, sadly to say, especially among those that we are closest to and nearest to, that often we treat the worst. And we don't really have any excuse before God in so doing. And we need to all seriously uh, inspect 
examine our hearts and our lives if, where that is the case. Verse 13 says, the Lord Jesus continues, and he says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So the love that true Christians should have for one another is to be willing to lay down our lives for the one that's loved. It is indeed a contradiction for us to say that we love someone and we'd be willing to lay down our lives for that person, but at the same time to say, I can't live with this person. You'd be willing to die for the person, but you can't live for the person? Yeah, I understand. Relationships are messy. Marriages can be very hard and very difficult. And we've all had those difficulties. Every, every, no one has a perfect marriage. We've all had to work through trials, learning to love one another in spite of the trials, the differences, um, different backgrounds, different personalities. Uh, we've all had to work through those if we are married. That's a part of, again, a marriage. That's what marriage is one of the best means of sanctifying us, growing us in Christ. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus was not just willing to die for us, but he's our example. He's willing to live with us. And he knows far more about us than we even know about ourselves as far as our sins that we're willing to admit. Uh, he knows and sees it all. And yet, he was not only willing to die for us, he's willing to live with us through all of the mess, the fallenness yet in our lives. So true love, the kind of love that Jesus is here speaking of, is willing to lay down one's life for his friends, for the one that is loved. And that has to do with being willing to sacrifice our own rights, sacrifice our own desires, uh, to do what is good and right for the one loved. Love does not make us uh, the master of any. True love makes us the servant of all. The servant of all. That's what true love does by way of Jesus. Doesn't make us, doesn't give us control so that we have now power and control over someone. True love humbles us so that we become the servant of all, as Jesus did. Being Lord, being King, being Creator, He humbled Himself out of love for us, His people.
In this verse, Jesus infers who it was for whom he gave his life. In verse 13, greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did. He laid down his life for his friends. In John 10, verses 15 and 26, Jesus laid down his life for his sheep. In Acts 20, verse 28, Jesus laid down his life for his church. In Ephesians 5, 25, he laid down his life for his bride. Here, Jesus says, and the inference is, because his love is the greatest love, he laid down his life for his friends. You see something common in all of those? He laid down his life for those who would become his friend, for those who would become his sheep, for those who would become his church, for them who would become his bride. He did not lay down his life for those who would never become his friend. He didn't die for the world in general. In, in other words, without exception, every single human being. He, he gave his life for his friends, for those that he would make his friends through his death and resurrection. That's, again, what all of these verses teach, whether it's talking about a sheep, his church, his bride. Those are the ones for whom Jesus died. Not, the, not those who were not his sheep, not for those who were not of his church, not for those who were not his bride, but for those, and for those only, and for those who were his friends. And in the next verse, verse 14, Jesus identifies who are his friends. When he says, ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Ye are my friends. If you basically uh, do my will, uh, do what I uh, command you. You show and demonstrate in evidence you're my friend, for whom I have given my life to save and to rescue. We can hardly <clears throat> describe the friends of Jesus here to be those who merely make a profession of faith and yet spend all eternity in hell because there is no true uh, living faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, those who are his friends do not spend all eternity in hell, so how can we say that Jesus died for them? They're not his friends if they spend all eternity in hell. They're not his sheep if they spend all eternity in hell. They're not his church if they, uh, if they spend all eternity in hell. They're not his bride if they spend all eternity in hell. Those are the ones for whom Jesus did uh, give his life for his friends. Now, I'm not making these statements up. I'm simply quoting what Jesus and the, uh, the apostles have taught us what they have said. Um, I 
personally, at one time in my life, fought against this doctrine. I despised this doctrine. It was only the grace of God that turned my heart, my mind, to consider and to, to study this doctrine and to come to embrace it as being what Jesus himself taught. Our relationship to Jesus Christ is described in various ways by way of different human relationships. Uh, we can say that Jesus is our Savior. We can say that Jesus is our Master. We can say that Jesus is our King. Jesus is our Husband. Jesus is our Elder Brother. Jesus is our Shepherd. Jesus is our captain. But here, Jesus uses a most precious word and, and illustrates the relationship he has with us. Jesus says he is our friend. Our friend. Not our enemy who is out to get us, but our friend. Proverbs 18.24 speaks of a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Jesus is that kind of a friend. A true friend is one with whom you want to spend time and who wants to spend time with you. One with whom you discuss your burdens, your cares, your needs, one with whom there is a loyalty and a, and a trust, like David and, and Jonathan, true friends. Verse 15, Jesus says, Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends for all things, that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. So Jesus says here, I'm, I no longer call you, uh, my disciples, call, I no longer call you servants. Uh, he doesn't mean that they're not still servants, but he's saying, Jesus is saying, I'm not only calling you servants, there is a sense in, uh, uh, in which uh, we are all God's servants, all Christ's servants as well. But what he's saying to his disciples at this point, there is a relationship that is so near and close, the communion such, that we can only describe it as, and Jesus can describe it as a friend. I am your friend. And you are my friend. And he says that relationship is evidenced because he has not hid his will. You confide in friends, okay? You confide, you know, things that are very important to you, to friends, because you trust them. They're, you know, you trust that they're going to, uh, uh, to not 
expose you um, when you share something um, uh, that they are going to try to help you. They're going to be there for you. Um, there's a loyalty, there's a trust um, uh, there. Uh, that's, again, the relationship of a friend. And so Jesus saying, uh, I don't consider you simply to be a servant, but a friend because I'm willing to unburden myself or share with you my will to give to you my commandments, to, to open my heart to you and reveal myself unto you. A friend who is near to the heart uh, is the opposite of a stranger that one does not know and is very distant. So when we talk about a friend, we're talking about, again, uh, the opposite of a stranger. Uh, and let me make some application here before moving on to verse 16. And I think it's biblical, what I'm about, certainly believe it's biblical, um, but I've also, through my own marriage and through counseling over many, many years, and uh, this is, hopefully, those of you who are single will pick up on and hear what I'm saying. I, I submit that those marriages that result from friendship, from friendship, a pure friendship, rather than being overwhelmed by passion, will usually be the marriages that last. Will be the marriages that last. Because passion, the emotions, will come and go. But true friendship will last, will endure the hardest trials that are brought against two friends. That doesn't mean that passion in marriage is undesirable. It is desirable. It does not mean that lack of friendship in a marriage should end a marriage. There's a covenant that's been entered into. But what I am saying is that a marriage that is built upon Christ, first and foremost, and then is built upon friendship, is a marriage that will endure. And endure, not just barely hanging on, but will endure with the greatest amount of joy. Friendship. So I, I stress that. I mean, that, that's good for all of us who are married uh, to, to hear, but I stress that for, for all of you who are single. That's what you should desire first and foremost uh, in a potential uh, marriage partner is to establish a pure, and not a passionate, a pure friendship, first of all. That won't end. If you do that, that will continue through the marriage. 
And if it's built upon the passion, again, uh, I'm just from uh, bottom of my heart, uh, again, uh, that uh, is so unstable to build a marriage upon. Verse 16, John 15, 16. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. And uh, let me, before I, before I comment on verse 16, let me just say, just because, again, uh, a marriage did not begin with friendship, as I said, it doesn't mean that it should end, but uh, uh, end the marriage. It's not grounds to end a marriage, but it should be a challenge for all of us to work at being a friend being a friend uh, even before uh, and making that even a priority uh, even over uh, marital intimacy that becoming more important not saying that the marital intimacy is not important but but saying this is most important as far as um, horizontal relationship most important is our relationship with Jesus Christ, but as far as other matters related to one another and a marriage, uh, focus and take steps uh, to reclaim. And if it has never been the case, then to build friendship. Talk about how can we build a friendship with one another. So again, verse 16, we read already. Here Jesus declares, and again, I'm not, uh, I'm simply reading what Jesus says. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Uh, most churches, sadly, have that just inverted, uh, as if Jesus said, uh, I have not chosen you, but ye have chosen me. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said just the opposite. Ye have not chosen me, I have chosen you. And so, again, um, this simply is saying, because it's in the context of friendship, I believe Jesus is saying, I chose you to be my friends. You didn't choose me to be your friend. I first chose you. I chose you. In fact, Jesus chose us to be his friends from all eternity, before even creation. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 5, the Apostle Paul says that we are chosen in... Christ Jesus, according as he hath chosen us in him, in Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So verse 4 is saying very clearly, he didn't choose this because he saw us as holy and without blame before him in love. He chose us that we should become holy and without blame before him in love. Because when he chose us from all eternity, he saw us as sinners deserving his condemnation like every human being. But he chose and set his love upon us. There was no good reason uh, from a perspective of my being better or you being better than somebody else. That wasn't on the basis of that that he chose us because we all deserved his judgment and his condemnation. But of his own free will, he set his love upon us and chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. What about those that were not chosen, that he passed over? Well, when he judges them as sinners, does he, is he being unfair to them? No, he's giving them what they deserve. In our case, he's giving us what we don't deserve. That's mercy. That's grace. Jesus does not seem to be saying here in John 15, 16 that, uh, that he chose them to be his apostles. Many would uh, offer that as the interpretation, not that he chose them uh, to be his friends, but to be his apostles. But in the context, he's talking about they are his friends. He laid down his life for them, who are his friends. And I would submit, as he continues into verse 16, he's still talking of, uh, in relationship to the disciples being his friends, that, that they did not choose him, to be their friend, he chose them to be his friend or his friends. And that's further emphasized later on in this same chapter in verses 18 through 19. Jesus says, John 15, 18 through 19, if the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. Then verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own, because ye are not of the world, now notice, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. If this was talking about him having chosen them to be apostles, he would be saying, I chose you to be apostles out of my friends. He doesn't say that. I chose you to be mine out of the world, out of the evil world, out of the condemned world, the world that hates Christ. He took them, he chose them out of the world, not out from among his friends. So the, the greater category from which Jesus chose them here is the world. And he chose them to be his friends from out of the world. That seems, I believe, in the context to be the correct understanding 
of what Christ is saying here. And I just want to emphasize again, we cannot say that Jesus chose those to be his friends who spend all eternity in hell. How does that work? I choose you to be my friend and yet you're going to spend all eternity in hell? No, those whom he chooses to be his friends spend all eternity in heaven with him. Those are where, that's where his friends find. So again, all we can say is those who spend all eternity in hell, Jesus did not choose to be his friends. He did not choose them in Christ uh, before the foundation of the world. And so, this, uh, this truth that Jesus is emphasizing here is not that Jesus, uh, in eternity, chose those to be his friends whom he looked into the future and saw that they would be his friends. And so basically, his, his, uh, his election or his choice was not based upon their choice of him. In other words, who initiates the choosing here, according to Jesus? He says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. So to say that Jesus is saying, I chose you because you first chose me, is to completely contradict what Jesus is saying here. No, he, he's, he's eliminating that as a possibility. He's not saying, uh, I chose you because you first chose me. He's saying just the opposite. You did not choose me, I chose you. And so it's all of God's free grace. As I said, I, I struggled for the better part of a year in my 20s with this doctrine. Uh, and many tears, uh, weeping, uh, struggling over this doctrine. God is faithful. Uh, and all I can say is praise be to God that he did indeed open my heart and my eyes to see the truth of this and now this is one of the most precious truths to me that Jesus set his love upon me from all eternity he sent his son to die for me he has called me his friend as I call him my friend, and he has given to me everlasting life, but it all began in eternity with his choosing me, not me choosing him. So let us, as we close, let us ever marvel and be in utter amazement that he chose us to be his friends and let us demonstrate that we are his friends by the way we love him love and do have communion with him and by the way we love one another we demonstrate we are his friends let's stand in prayer Father in heaven, our blessed Lord Jesus, 
we praise thee and thank thee for thy word which is truth how we thank thee that that special relationship of being a friend is the relationship that Jesus has purchased for us he chose us to be his friend that we in time through faith in Christ might become his friend we pray father that thou would cause us not to just allow these truths to be forgotten but Lord to, to meditate upon to reflect upon that it may indeed change uh, our lives that our relationship with thee Lord Jesus uh, would not only be that of a, a servant and a Lord a subject and a king but that it would also be that of a friend and a friend father we we praise thee uh, for these amazing truths uh, that do not drive us from thee if we truly understand them but rather drive us unto thee for this is what we lord desire Lord, to have this kind of a relationship. If we, have been, if we have been saved, this is what we desire, to live in this friendship, this communion with Jesus Christ. We thank thee, Lord, and give thee praise. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Any questions? Uh, from our study this evening. Hey, Greg, this is Tom. Hi, Tom. Hi. Yeah, I've uh, had discussions with people before where they say uh, that these terms like sheep, friend, um, church, those kinds of terms you were mentioning are just subsets of... <clears throat> the real um, uh, uh, amount of people that he died for, I guess I would say, which is all. So he died for all, but these are just subsets talked about. How would you, uh, can you comment on that? Yeah. Well, uh, I think in the study of John, we, we've certainly looked at the word all and, uh, you know, for for example, in John six, that uh, that he uh, speaks of those who were given to him, that he um, uh, the Father gave to the Son, um, those, and that the Son, uh, all that were given to the Father by the Father to the Son to save, all of them will be raised up on that final day. So again, I think that if we're going to interpret the all to mean all without exception, then we're, we really have to take the, the view of universalism. I think that the better understanding of, of those verses that speak of all 
whether it be, you know, um, all for whom Christ died um, or other uses of all as it relates to salvation is to not say and, and interpret all to mean all without exception, but all without distinction. Uh, all uh, kinds of people uh, are those for whom Jesus died. Uh, whether the all kinds of people, meaning young, uh, old, rich, poor, uh, male, female. Um, again, those types of um, uh, people and the elect are among all of those kinds of people. So trying to, again, um, point out various passages uh, where the word all is used and you know, even, even many who believe that Jesus died for every single individual would have to say there are many places in the Bible where the word all cannot mean all without exception. For example, just uh, one place in uh, Colossians uh, chapter 1, uh, we read in um, verse, let me see if I can find it real quick here. In verse 23, says uh, Colossians 1.23, If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Every creature under heaven has had the gospel preached to him, Paul says. Uh, now, uh, I think that uh, even a universalist is going to have to to say that that's not uh, that cannot mean every creature without exception. It has to be every creature without distinction. Um, and so again, there are so many of those types of passages uh, that we have to again uh, uh, perhaps spend some time seeking to understand or, or to teach what is the word all mean, and I think to, to at least um, have an understanding. You may not, you know, they may not um, agree with us uh, with regard to the, uh, how to interpret those passages as it really relates to salvation. They still may want to um, relate it to every single person uh, without, without exception, but if we can at least get to the place where they are willing to admit that there are, there are many places in the scripture where we cannot interpret the word all or every to mean without exception, but they must be interpreted uh, to mean uh, all or every without distinction. Then I think that if we can establish that, then we can at least uh, say, since those are accept, since, since that's an acceptable interpretation. Okay. Since that's an acceptable interpretation, then um, I think that we um, can build from that um, and uh, try to 
and again probably won't happen over overnight it took me as I said um, uh, approximately a year of uh, studying these issues before I was able to see uh, with and understand uh, the truth uh, concerning this yeah so I think I'm back. okay all right yeah I just think that uh, patience um, with people uh, I didn't as I, I was just saying I didn't come to understand these things overnight I think being patient um, you know trying to control our emotions in those discussions um, and uh, you know just trying to remember where we were or at least for me where I was at one time and uh, the Lord was merciful patient with me and uh, I, I just want to you know try to be the same to those who are struggling with this uh, this doctrine Well, I'm not struggling with it, but I just find it interesting that the same people that uh, um, say all is all without distinction or all is without exception will, in other discussions, talk about how the Old Testament saints were uh, saved by keeping the law or just believing in God or, or something like that. So. It just seems strange to me that they'll say Jesus died for every man, woman, and child, you know, that's ever existed or will exist, but then they undermine that whole idea by saying that other people were saved by other means. Right. It's just strange. I don't know if you've come across that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I certainly, you know, the... Uh uh, way that you put that, that uh, they see those as subsets and, and that the uh, uh, larger category of humanity, um, you know, those are just subsets of, of the larger category of humanity. Certainly, yeah, that's, that's uh, another popular um, uh, you know, view. But uh, I, I think that it's, it's very important, again, the passage that we were looking at tonight uh, about God's, Christ says, I... Uh, you did not choose me, I chose you. And then we have to ask, uh, from what? Chosen uh, from what category? Was, were, the, were they chosen to be his from the category of friends, already friends? Uh, or were they chosen from the category of the world? Um, you know, that, uh, and uh, so I think that, you know, uh, patience going through passages it, again people have to obviously be willing uh, to hear uh, and to uh, listen and to consider these things if there is no willingness uh, you know to sit down and discuss these matters and to go through various places where God you know makes these truths clear um, then, you know, that should probably will be evident, you know, fairly early on. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. if, if there, if there is a willingness, then, you know, the God, then the Lord is giving us perhaps some fertile ground to sow some seed. But if there's just, you know, uh, emotion and, um, you know, uh, such a defensive posture, uh, that you, you can hardly, 
uh, get a word in edgewise, then probably t time to think about moving on and and just saying, you know, that you'll you'll be in prayer for them, and uh, if they do want to talk in the future, that you're willing to to talk with them. Well, yeah, exactly. The last uh, person I talked to about this got pretty hostile, so I just had to uh, kind of shut it down, you know, because it was there's just too much hostility. Right. And, um, yeah, See you very, later. Very emotional, well. very emotional issue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can. Yeah. Okay, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you all for joining us. Uh, you are dismissed. <laughs>